grab a seat. Uh, good morning. Uh, you can go ahead and start making your way in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, book of Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, the book of Ephesians has been laying out the gospel, how God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has paid for our sins, has uh, reconciled us back to himself, is redeeming us, purchasing us back for himself, has uh, brought us from death to life. He's made us alive, and he's made us new creations in Jesus. And the past few chapters of Ephesians have been talking about what it looks like to walk as those new creations, what it looks like to live this new life that God has saved us for uh, and has recreated us for and is uh, renewing in us. And so here in the back half of Ephesians 5, Paul's going to apply that specifically to marriage. What does it look like to live as new creations when it comes uh, to marriage? And, and we need this because many of us are right now or one day will be married, and we, we need to know what the Bible says about it. But even if you're not right now and you never will be married, uh, we still need to know what God says about marriage because what Ephesians 5 is going to show us is that marriage ultimately is not about marriage. Marriage is about Jesus. Uh, what Ephesians 5 is going to show us is that marriage exists. God created and designed it for the gospel to display the good news of the gospel. And so we need the gospel for both our marriages and for our singleness. It's going to show us that husbands and wives are called to be a picture of the gospel with their marriages because marriage exists to display the love and glory and beauty of Jesus. And so let's look together in the text and see how Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, and we'll read through the end of the chapter Starting in verse 22, the word of God to us. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, as we come to your word, would you give us insight? Would you help us to see? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate and give light to the word that you have inspired? God, these are your words, and we are listening. We want to hear what you have to say to us, and so help us. Would you help us as uh, husbands and wives, to walk in uh, the, the calling that you've placed on us here. Would you help all of us to uh, rejoice and rest in the gospel marriage that 
uh, the gospel message that marriage points to. God, would you give us grace in this moment to have ears to hear, hearts to believe. Would you captivate us with the beauty of Jesus above anything else that will be said in the next few minutes? God, would you help us to see Jesus? I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Well, here in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us both the framework for marriage and the fuel for marriage. The framework and the fuel. And so uh, let's think first about the framework, the, the structures and the patterns that, that Paul lays out here and God lays out here uh, for marriage. And we get the first part of that framework in verse 22 when Paul tells wives, addresses wives and calls them to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I know submission is a loaded word, but it's a good word. It's a Bible word, and so we need to understand what it means and what God is calling wives to here, because God is calling wives to this, to submission. And so uh, I want to give a little bit of definition of what submission is not, and then we'll talk about what submission is. And so uh, first, submission is not grounds for abuse, and Paul is not calling wives to submit to abuse. You actually can't submit to abuse because submission is something you always choose to do. You always have agency when we're talking about submission. Notice here in the text that Paul's calling. He's commanding wives to submit to their husbands. If he is commanding you to submit, that means you have the agency to either do it or not do it. You have the ability to obey or disobey this command uh, but if you can't choose, or you're overpowered in some ways, so that you're not able to willingly and freely choose to submit, we're not talking about submission anymore. We're in a completely different category. And so as a wife, you do not have to, and you should not stay and endure abuse from your husband because you think the Bible calls you to submit to that. It doesn't. That's not what submission is. Second, submission's also not about following your husband into sin. In verse 24, when it says that wives are to submit in everything to their husbands, we've got to use Scripture to help interpret Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, when the apostles get in trouble with the governing authorities for preaching the good news of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus, and the governing authorities tell them to stop preaching the gospel, and they refuse to, and they disobey uh, what's the reason they give? They say, it's better for us to obey God than man. This is why we're going to continue preaching. And so if submission to your husband is going to lead you into sin, you are not called to submit to your husband. When Paul says submit in everything, he's talking about in every area of life, not every single decision that your husband makes. Third, submission's not about being a domestic servant. The principles of headship and submission are pretty clear in Scripture. The specific outworking of them is not. The Bible does not give us a ton of concrete specifics on how we work this out in our homes. It doesn't give us a list where it says wives should do these household chores and husbands should do these chores. Now, we really love rules and lists because those are easier to follow, and we know when we've checked off the box and done what we were supposed to, but most of the time the Bible does not give us that. Instead, it calls us to use wisdom. And so submitting to your husband doesn't require you being kind of the traditional picture you might think of of a 1950s housewife. Uh, if that's how you and your husband decide together that you want to break down the household chores, that's completely okay. You're fine to do that, but that's not what this command requires. 
And then fourth and finally, submission is not blind obedience and deference to your husband's preferences. Submitting to your husband does not mean that you can never voice your opinion or your preferences. It doesn't mean you can never challenge your husband's judgment, try to help him see a different way. And it does not mean you just have to obey whatever your husband says. Paul's going to use a different word than submit when he moves on in chapter 6 to talk about what children are supposed to do with their parents and what employees are supposed to do with their bosses. He's going to call them to obey. Uh, That's a different word. He does not call wives to obey their husbands here. Instead, he calls them to submit to them. And so submission is not all of that. What is submission? Well, to get a start on the definition, look down at verse 33 again, where Paul sums all of his teaching back up, and he repeats that husbands are to love their wives, and then he says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So at the base level, submission is about respect. There is more to the definition, but there is not less to the definition. To submit to your husband means to respect your husband. And verse 23 helps us fill out this definition. It gives us a little bit more. Uh, It gives us the reason why wives should submit to their husbands, which is that the husband is the head of his wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. So what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? Well, the word for head here means the one who has authority over and responsibility for those who are under him. And so submission means honoring your husband by willingly putting yourself under his authority and leadership. And and I know to say that you're to put yourself under your husband's authority and that your husband has authority over you as his wife uh, raises hackles for some people, but we're going to talk about what sort of authority the Bible gives husbands in just a second when we talk about Paul's call to husbands. And after we talk about that and lay that out, I'd be surprised if you'd still be shocked at the Bible calling husbands the head uh, and and calling you to honor his authority as the husband. And so just hold on. If that's where you're at, we'll get there. But again, submission is respect. It's a willingness to be persuaded to follow your husband's leadership. It's a deference to your husband's spiritual leadership of the family. It's putting yourself under that leadership and using your gifts and talents to serve that leadership of the family. Now, it's just a a biological fact of the way that God created us that men in general, in the vast majority of cases, are physically stronger than women. Uh, Not tougher. We are definitely not tougher. uh, But we are definitely physically stronger than women. And so as a woman, the vast majority of the time, you cannot use your physical strength to overpower your husband. And so what often happens? Wives control their their husbands with their tongues by shaming them and cutting them down with their words. Wives, I think you know you have the ability to cut your husband with your words deeper than any knife ever could. Uh, you have, your words are so powerful in either building your husband up or tearing him down at the very core of his soul. And look, most of us men try to cover it up with bravado and acting like we've, all, we've got it all together, but I just haven't met the guy who doesn't at some level feel like he's inadequate and not good enough uh, at what God calls him to do and be as a man and as a husband and as a father. 
you respecting him and encouraging him up into spiritual leadership and speaking words of life rather than tearing him down could be just what God uses uh, to call him up into the type of husband and father that God wants him to be. But even if it doesn't do that, this is still the same sort of respect that you're called to as a wife. Respect is being for your husband's good and for his growth and working towards that with the way that you honor him and show a willingness to follow his spiritual leadership of the family. A good way to think of it is, wives, if if the whole world were to turn against your husband, does he know that you wouldn't? Does he know that even if everything in his life is going terrible right now, if work is awful and everything is a mess, does he know that home is a refuge where he's not going to be constantly being cut down with passive-aggressive or aggressive remarks about how uh, he's doing a terrible job as a husband and he's such a bad guy and he uh, doesn't know how to do anything? And if, if that's where you're at, if not... You've probably got some work to, uh, to do in this area to honor this command. Because again, this is a command. You are to submit to your husband as to the Lord. That does not mean you submit to your husband like he's Jesus. That means you submit to your husband as a way to honor Jesus. This is a way you walk in obedience to the Lord. This is a part of your discipleship as a wife. What it means for you to follow Jesus. And maybe you'd say, well, I've got a husband who's kind of a deadbeat spiritually, who doesn't ever take initiatives in these areas. And that may very well be true, but even if it is, remember that you are ultimately respecting and honoring and submitting to him as a way to honor and obey Jesus. And if that is your situation, if that's where you find find yourself, think of it like uh, working for a bad boss. Now, this is not the same Uh, You've got to give, as an employee, a level of obedience to your boss that you do not, as a wife, have to give to your husband. Your husband is not your boss, uh, but the principle still transfers over. Uh, If you've got a bad boss, you should not let that be an excuse to be a bad employee yourself and to cut corners and do only the minimum required of you and uh, find ways to not do what you're supposed to do Uh, you should still do the best job you can and be the best employee you can be. And even if your boss doesn't recognize it, because Colossians 3 tells us that that ultimately you're not working for your boss, you're working for the Lord. In the same way, you might have a husband that doesn't take initiative spiritually, isn't all you'd like him to be, doesn't always recognize what you do, but you can still find ways to submit and honor and show respect because ultimately you are not submitting to Him. You're submitting to Jesus and trying to honor Jesus. And so this is the first part of the framework that Paul gives us for marriage. Wives submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord is a way that they honor Jesus. Look at the next part of the framework that Paul gives us, his call to husbands uh, in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands, you take your cues from Jesus. You lead your wife by loving her in the same way that Jesus loves his bride, the church. You are meant to be a picture of and a representative of Jesus to your wife by the way you love and serve and give yourself up for her. 
That means you take the lead in giving yourself up and sacrificing yourself so that she can be built up and flourish. You lead the way in sacrificing for her good. You're called to set the pace in giving up your preferences and your wants and your desires so that your wife can flourish spiritually. You take the initiative to love and serve and sacrifice for her whether she gives it back and serves you or not. You don't wait for her to earn your love and service because Jesus did not do that with you or with the church and said he loved you and sacrificed himself for you way before you ever even thought about returning his love. And you're called to love your wife like this for a specific purpose. Look at what the text says. It says Christ loved and gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church to sanctify her, to make her holy, to cleanse her so that she will be presented to Him spotless on that final day. And husbands, you get to play a role in this with your wife. No, you are not Jesus. You do not save your wife, but you do get to love her towards Jesus. You are called to help her see Jesus in the way that you love her. You are called to prepare her to meet Jesus by the way you represent him to her. Look at the text, verse 28. It says, in the same way that Jesus washes his bride with the water of the word and he nourishes and he cherishes her, in the same way husbands should love their wives. Your love for your wife should be a means of helping her grow to look more like Jesus. This is why you've been given authority as a husband, to lead your wife towards greater godliness and a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's it. That's all you've been authorized and given authority by Jesus to do. Now, I'm not the first person to point this out, but notice that the text does not command you to lead your wife or to make her submit to you, or to be the head of your wife. Notice instead what it says in verse 23. It says the husband is the head of his wife. Is. That means this is a reality whether we recognize it or not. As a husband, you are the head of your wife. You can do that well, and you can use your authority Uh, and responsibility in a way that leads her to flourish and be built up, or you can do that poorly in a way that causes her to wilt and die spiritually, but you will not be able to escape the fact that you are going to have a massive spiritual influence on your wife for good or for bad. And not only does the text show us why husbands have been given authority, it also shows us what sort of authority husbands have been given. Because there are different types of authority that people can have. I've been really helped uh, thinking through this by a framework that somebody else has developed, the difference between authority of counsel and authority of command. Authority of command means that along with your authority, you've got a way to enforce your authority and your commands. For example, governments and parents of young children have authority of command. The government can tell you what to do, and if you don't do it, what can they do to you? They can put you in jail. They can execute you. They can do all sorts of things to you. They have what the Bible calls the power of the sword. They have a way to enforce their commands and force you to obey. Uh, Parents of young children have authority of command. 
Parents, you can tell your six-year-old, go to bed. It's past your bedtime. And if they don't listen to you, you can discipline them for that. You have a way to enforce your commands because they're called to obey you in that way and you have that authority. Husbands do not have authority of command over their wives. Husbands have no discipline or enforcement mechanism. So, for example, if you tell your wife, and please don't tell your wife this, you should not tell your wife this, but if you were to say something to your wife, like you said to your six-year-old, hey, go to bed, it's past your bedtime, and she doesn't listen to you, you've got no authority from Jesus to be able to enforce that command or make her obey. Because husbands do not have authority of command, they have authority of counsel. This is where the text is pushing us, because in every way that it compares husbands to Jesus and instructs them to take their cues from Jesus, it's about how Jesus gives of himself and sacrifices and loves and serves and washes and cherishes and nourishes his bride. Jesus does have authority of command over us, but that's not the comparison that's being highlighted here between the role of husbands and Jesus. What's being highlighted here is the way that Jesus woos and and appeals and invites and wins us back with sacrificial love. As a husband, that's what you're called to, and that radically changes the relationship between husbands and wives. The relationship between husbands and wives should not look like the relationship between parents and children, because authority of counsel means that you have real authority. You've been authorized by Jesus to help lead your wife towards greater godliness and be a representative of Jesus to her, but you've got no discipline or enforcement mechanism. You cannot force her to obey. If you are really leading your wife towards the way of godliness and towards Jesus and she rejects that, she'll have to take that up with Jesus on the last day, but there's nothing you can do in the meantime to make her obey, you don't have that authority like a father does with his children. Which again, just radically changes the relationship. An authority of counsel is marked much more by inviting and appealing and persuading and wooing instead of commanding and demanding. You have to earn your wife's trust because you don't want and you can't get her blind obedience You want her to choose the way of godliness on her own. And this also helps clear up some of the ways we get off track here because if as a husband your call is to lead your wife in the way of godliness and you can't force that, do you really think that spending the vast majority of your conversations telling her what to do about, hey, will you do the dishes? Will you do that? Will you take care of this? Will you take care of that? You need to do this. You need to do that. Do you think that's really going to help her trust you when you say, hey, I think we need to trust God here, and I think this is what that looks like in this situation. I think we should do this. Do you think that always getting your way and always getting your preferences and always making the decision on things that do not matter is going to help her to trust you when it actually comes time to lead her spiritually in the things that really do matter? Of course not, right? All of which means, as husbands, we cannot be passive spiritually. And I do want to encourage you, by the grace of God, we have so many healthy marriages here. We are marked by husbands and wives who really do love each other and really are trying to help each other follow Jesus. And, and dads, we have so many dads who are involved with their children and, and 
are working their hardest to love and serve their children and raise them in the discipline of the Lord. But look, this is a high calling, and there's always room to grow. And if there's a common sin that affects all of us as husbands and fathers, it's passivity in the area of spiritual leadership. So many of us are just passive in this area. We take initiative at our jobs, we're passionate about it, and we take action and we dream up new ways to do a good job and accomplish goals and break new ground. We're thinking of new ways to succeed and grow in our role. We might even take initiative in our hobbies and pursue those and make sure we do good at those as well, but we don't always take the same initiative to make sure our wives and children are knowing and loving Jesus. And having an authority of command with your wife would make this easier because you could just come home and sit on your throne and dole out commands that she's got to obey uh, and you could be passive the rest of the time. You wouldn't have to worry about it because your word is law and you just have to do whatever you say, but you don't have that. You have to take spiritual initiative so that your wife is hearing about Jesus, is getting a picture of Jesus' love from you, is talking about the Bible, is growing in her knowledge of God. You've got to take spiritual initiative so that your wife willingly chooses to follow you in following Jesus. Maybe the best way to think about it is to, to wrestle with this question from Kent Hughes. The question, is our wife more like Jesus because she's married to us? Or is she like Jesus in spite of us? We want our wives to be like Jesus because they are married to us. That's the reason we've been given to her as a husband to help prepare her to meet Jesus. And I get it. Maybe you're thinking, I'd love to do that, but I just don't know how to do that. And I want to challenge you, you actually do know how to do that. Because leadership in general, not just spiritual leadership, is much more about taking initiative than it is about solving all the problems and making all the decisions. Taking initiative means you get the ball rolling. You get the conversation started. You make sure that the things that need to get talked about get talked about, and the things that need to get done are getting done. And you know how to take initiative. I've watched you for years now do it in your jobs. And so take that same energy and passion and turn it towards your home. You can start with something as simple as praying with your wife. Ask her what she's learning in her Bible reading. Talk about what you're learning from your Bible reading. Ask her what she learned from the sermon or from the Bible study. If you guys are in a season where you need marriage counseling, you take the lead in ensuring that gets scheduled. Don't drag your feet while you make her do all of that. Man, uh, watch the kids. Free up her schedule. Give her opportunities to develop friendships and relationships with other women in the church. Ask her where she feels like she's growing spiritually. Ask her where she's struggling to trust God. Tell her ways you've been specifically praying for her. And find practical ways to love and serve and care for her throughout the day so that she trusts you when you do take initiative to lead the family spiritually. Take verses 28 through 30 about how we as husbands should care for our wives like we care for our own bodies because they're one flesh with us. Think about how concerned you are with making sure that your needs are met and that you're taken care of and that you're comfortable 
And then show that same level of concern and care with your wife. Treat her with the same level of concern that you show yourself because she is one flesh with you. It's not the only way we can do this. Look, look again at what the text says Jesus does in verse uh, 26. It says he washes her with the water of the word. And so here's what this means, husbands. The primary mouthpiece in your wife's life for understanding God's love for her is going to be you. She is going to get a picture of what God is like towards her from you. You're not going to be able to avoid it. And so if you verbally bully her or wear her down or constantly criticize her or make her feel dumb, make her feel like she can never measure up with your words, she's eventually going to feel that that's the way that God feels towards her and that's how God relates to her. But on the other hand, if you wash her with the water of God's Word, if you're constantly building her up with life-giving words and encouragements and reminding her of the Gospel and of God's love for her, you get to be the primary earthly voice in her life to help her see herself the way God sees her and loves her. What an incredible job God has given us as husbands. Why would you not want to step into that? Why would you not want someone to be able to look in on your marriage and say, your wife is secure in who Jesus says she is in large part because of the way that you encourage her and you nourish her and you cherish her and you speak to her. She knows she's loved and treasured and cherished by you. Headship is not about calling the shots or having the power. Headship is about having the responsibility and taking the initiative to help your wife be more like Jesus. I can't sum it up better than this. This is from Jonathan Lehman. He says, a wife should be able to watch her husband in order to learn what Jesus' love and authority are like. It's as if when Jesus shows up, she'll more easily recognize him because she's been watching her husband imitate Christ's pattern for years. Husbands exist, in short, to show the world that Jesus Christ loves his people, the church, with a perfect, all-affectionate, and self-sacrificing love. The office of husband does not exist for its own sake, but to point toward a higher, more ultimate reality, Christ's love for the church. So this is the framework for marriage. Wives reflect the church in lovingly submitting to their husbands. Husbands reflect Jesus in loving and giving themselves up for the flourishing of their wives. Marriage exists to point each other and to point the world towards the gospel. That's why this framework is important. But, but the framework isn't enough. We don't just need to know what to do. We need the power to do it. We need the fuel for marriage as well. Because here's the truth about us. We don't come into marriage neutral. And we don't come into marriage as good people. We come into marriage as two selfish sinners. Uh, I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller here. He's written an excellent book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, and as a point of application, it could be a really good thing for you as a couple to get that book and read it together and talk about it together as a couple. It would be really helpful. Uh, but he points out that with caveats... The greatest threat to your marriage is your self-centeredness. Now look, there are things that, that a spouse might do that functionally break the marriage covenant, like abuse or adultery or abandonment. 
And if that's taking place, obviously that's a greater immediate threat to your marriage than your selfishness, and that's got to be dealt with. We're in a different category. We're having a different conversation there. But with those caveats, if those things are not present, the greatest threat to your marriage is your self-centeredness. Not your spouse's, yours. The greatest enemy of your marriage is you. The enemy is that you love yourself and you cherish yourself and you don't want to, to serve. You want to be served. You want your own comfort. You want your spouse to love you and accept you as you are with no expectations of you ever changing anything while at the same time you want them to change all the things that you don't like about them. You may think, yeah, I've got a little bit of selfishness, I've got a little bit of sin, but it's definitely not as bad as his. It's definitely not as bad as hers. And left to ourselves, we're not going to break out of that. You're just going to continue in that pattern of selfishness and justifying it by saying, well, my spouse is worse than I am. You know, you might settle for for the kind of tit-for-tat bargaining. You might settle for functionally living as roommates in the same house, and you just agree to not do some of the things that really annoy each other. But you will not live into what Ephesians 5's vision for marriage, what is supposed to be. Our marriages are supposed to point to the gospel, to be a picture of the gospel, which we will not do left to ourselves and left to our own self-centeredness. And so we need the gospel for our marriages. The good news is that Paul tells us that's exactly what we have. In verse 31, he quotes from Genesis 2 about how a husband, a man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And listen to what he says in verse 32 about this. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife and becoming one flesh with her is deep. It is profound. And Paul is saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That human marriage is not ultimately about human marriage. It is about Christ and the church. Marriage exists. God created it to be an illustration of the gospel. The gospel does not exist to be an illustration of marriage. Marriage exists to point people to the good news of Jesus. Because here's what marriage says. You and I were created by God to know Him and love Him and walk in intimate fellowship with Him. Genesis 2 describes it as naked and unashamed. And that is not just talking about physical nakedness. That, that means having nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to have, to have guilt for. We were meant to have that sort of relationship with God where we're totally known and yet at the same time totally acceptable to God. But we rejected God. We spurned Him. We did not want a relationship with Him. And our sin brought shame and guilt upon us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, tried to cover themselves with leaves after they sinned because they felt shame over it. And at that point, it would have been completely just for God to give us over to His judgment. But God does not quit on His bride. Over and over in the Old Testament, God is referred to as His people's husband. The people of God are His bride. 
But if God is ultimately and finally going to have us as his bride, he's going to have to do something about our sin. Because what the Old Testament also tells us over and over is that the people of God are an unfaithful bride. They don't respond to God's love. They don't hold to their vows. They don't keep their promises. They don't stay committed to God. They're adulterers who give themselves over to other lovers and other gods every time they get the chance. Every time they get the chance, they worship idols and break the covenant that God made with them. And this is our story as well. We have turned to idols. We have rejected God. We've worshiped other gods. We've constantly spurned God, which is why we feel guilt and shame, because we are guilty. We are sinners. But even though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. God keeps pursuing. God keeps wooing. And in the fullness of time to win His bride back to Himself, Jesus comes as a man, and He lives the life of human faithfulness that we have not lived. And in order to overcome our sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness, He dies on the cross. He willingly gives Himself up for us so that He might win us back to Himself. He dies, and then three days later, He rises from the dead in human flesh, in our flesh, so that we could become one flesh with Him. You see, in marriage, you have the hope of dealing with some of your guilt and shame by receiving some measure of both truth and love. Because truth without love is harsh, and so often we're just not able to hear it. If someone constantly dogs on all our flaws and sins all the time and tells the truth about us without, the, without love to come alongside it, we're not able to receive it. But on the other hand, love without truth is just enabling sentimentality. It's hollow And it'll always feel hollow because you're always going to feel like, well, if this person really knew who I was, they wouldn't still love me like this. They wouldn't still feel the same way about me. But in marriage, you've got the hope of being truly known and yet at the same time truly loved. You've got someone who's seen the worst parts of you and yet at the same time has still committed to you and said, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, till death do us part, I am not going anywhere. That exists to point us to the gospel. Because way more than in human marriage, this is what we have in the gospel. Jesus, way more than your spouse, has seen the worst parts of you. He sees the sinful thoughts and motivations that your spouse probably doesn't even know about. He knows the worst parts of who you are. He knows the ways that you've tried to hide and cover yourself better than you do. And even though you had not committed to Him, do you know what He did? He loved you. He committed Himself to you. In the Gospel, we have the reality of being fully known by God, nothing hidden from Him, and yet at the same time, because of the work of Jesus, being fully acceptable to and loved by God. Jesus has seen all that you are and way before you ever got on the altar to make a commitment with Him, He stood there and said, I take you to be mine. I died for you so that we would never have to part. I'm with you for better or for worse. I love you and I am not going anywhere. And He pledged that commitment to you with His blood. 
He died to sanctify you, to cleanse you, to get you ready to live with Him forever, spotless and pure in His sight. And that's the fuel for marriage. How do you overcome your own self-centeredness and begin to love and serve your spouse? You look at what Jesus did for you and you begin to serve your spouse like that. How do you overcome the self-centeredness that is threatening all of our marriages? You let the love of Jesus for you become the deepest reality of your heart. You get your eyes on the gospel. You meditate on what Jesus did for you when you absolutely did not deserve it. If you will see Jesus giving up his preferences and his comforts and dying a miserable death to win you back to himself, if you'll really grasp that, I promise you it becomes a whole lot harder to say, oh, she'll take care of the dishes. I don't need to worry about that. You know, so often we struggle and we think, well, if I start working on my own self-centeredness and I start serving my spouse, what happens if they don't do it in return? What happens if they don't change as well? I mean, if I don't highlight all his flaws and his shortcomings, how's he ever going to see them and recognize them? But the only way you'll be able to see your selfishness as a greater problem and keep serving your spouse even before and even if they don't give it back and start changing themselves in return is if you realize that Jesus has met your need for, needs for love and acceptance and affirmation so that your spouse doesn't have to. When you don't need your spouse to be your Savior, they can just be your spouse and you can continue to love them and serve them and give yourself up for them even when they're not serving you back because you're getting what you ultimately need from Jesus, not from your spouse. And we all, married or single, have to see that marriage is about Jesus so that we don't idolize marriage. Marriage exists to give a picture of the union and joy and intimacy with God that we are going to get back, that is coming for us because of the work of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, that future is your hope, whether you ever get married or not. And if you're single, this hope will keep you from settling for marriage with someone who does not love Jesus, and it will keep you from idolizing marriage, feeling like you need a spouse to complete you. Because a spouse will not meet your needs for love and acceptance. Only Jesus can do that. So the hope for all of us, married or single, is Jesus. Marriage exists to give glory to Jesus, to show the beauty and depth of Jesus' commitment and love for his church. And the gospel gives our marriages the power to be a picture of Jesus' commitment and love. So husbands, wives, get your eyes on the gospel. Focus much more on the gospel than on the duties of marriage. Take your cues from the gospel and the rest will follow. Let me pray that that would be the case. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And thank you for marriage that points us forward and points us to and exists to serve as an illustration of your love for us and your care for us and your commitment to us. Jesus, thank you that even though we are sinners and rebels who have continually been unfaithful and spiritually adulterous, 
Thank you that you did not quit on us. Thank you that we can be one flesh with you. Thank you that the intimacy and love and joy that we were meant to have with you from day one, that that is here now and is coming even more in the future. God, help us to live into that vision. Help us as spouses to prepare our spouse for heaven, to prepare our spouse to meet you, Jesus. God, help us. Help us, help the wives in this room to submit and honor and show respect to their husbands as Christ does to the church. Help the husbands to love their wives as you love your church, Jesus. Help us. We all need your grace to overcome our self-centeredness and our selfishness in the ways we don't want to live into this vision, and we just want to be served instead of serving. So Jesus, would you make the gospel more real to us than anything else? Would you help us this week when we're tempted to be selfish and turn back in on ourselves? Would you help us to remember what you've done for us and step up and serve our spouses because of that? God, I pray that you would. In your name, amen.